Well, hey, that was amazing. <laughs> Love that. Please open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We have begun a very short series to help you understand and to open up the section of the Bible called the Prophets. It is the part of the Bible probably least preached in churches. I include myself among that. That's effort. This series is an effort to correct that. And the only complaint I've received so far about the series is, why only three weeks? And the answer to that is, we will return to the prophets again and again. It's going to be a regular feature because I want you to understand this very large section of, last, of God's Word. In it you see God's heart. In it you see God's character. In it you can see God's promises, many of which come to pass in the New Testament specifically, and most of all, in the life of Jesus. But the prophets wrote a long time ago in a language and in a culture very different than our own. So the task of understanding them can seem a little bit daunting, but once, it, once you get it, the entire Bible opens up to you as you understand who the prophets were, what they spoke against, what they promised if only God's people would come back to him. By way of review, and this will be very quick, last week I told you that the three major tasks of the prophets were these. First of all, the, the prophets invariably start with an accusation. Israel had been loved by God as no other nation in the world had. They were started through the life and the descendants of Abram who had grown up in what we now in Ur of the Chaldees, modern-day Turkey. His ancestors were moon worshippers entirely by God's grace, not because Abraham or his father before him had done anything to please God. God reached down, revealed himself to Abraham, explained who he was, and began to keep a promise to him to make a great nation of him. The covenant that God made with the nation that came from Abraham is detailed in the first five books in the Old Testament. You can read in books like Exodus and Numbers, God making a covenant and giving the details of the faithful love and life He will give Israel, the things He will do for them, and the obedience and love and loyalty He expects in return. So the prophets always start with an accusation. They're covenant enforcers. They've come to remind Israel that they are breaking their promises and their obligations to God. They say, you are disobeying God. Secondly, the prophets always issue a call for repentance. Repentance is a biblical term. It's a churchy word. A lot of people kind of turn their brain off as soon as they hear it. It sounds accusatory. It's a very simple word. It just means a U-turn. If you intend to go from here to San Diego and you're headed north on PCH, there's only one way to get to San Diego. If you find yourself suddenly from Huntington Beach, you end up in Long Beach, you intended to go to San Diego, what do you have to do? You have to turn around. There is no other way. You were headed north, you have to turn around and head south. That's all repentance means. It is a U-turn, a change of heart and mind that redirects your life. It's not a minor correction, it's not a course correction, it's not the kind of little adjustment you make on the wheel when you're going down the freeway to edge away, edge away from that girl who's on her cell phone and keeps veering into your lane. It's not a little adjustment, it's a complete reorientation to head in the right direction. That's a call for repentance. And then, of course, there's always a beautiful promise of restoration. 
You're disobeying God, come back to God, and God will forgive and restore you. And you're going to see all of those elements in Isaiah's first prophecy in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 20. Let me orient you to Isaiah. He wrote some 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the Old Testament. More than two dozen times, Isaiah is going to refer to God, as you're going to see here for the first time, as the Holy One of Israel. The one who is above Israel, apart from Israel, very, very different from his people, but loves them in spite of the difference. Isaiah is an astonishing book because it was written verifiably 700 years before Christ, and yet you can see in Isaiah's early chapters a promise of the virgin birth of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, you can see a detailed description of the crucifixion, of the nature of Jesus' death, of the kind of people he died with, and of the rich man who came to pledge his tomb to Jesus as a final posthumous honor to Jesus. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man. Isaiah puts all of that in clear writing in his 53rd chapter. And 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah, who enjoyed a long, rich ministry, under several different kings in the southern kingdom of Judah with the capital city of Jerusalem wrote this. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah, that's the nation, and Jerusalem, that's the capital city, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. This next feature is what makes the prophets so unique. They speak their writings with God's own voice. God is speaking now. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. I told you last week that one of the great values of reading the Old Testament, because the prophets so often speak, giving God the microphone directly, using the very voice and the words of God, you get to hear God for himself, you get to see God's character in bright colors as you may not see in many other places in the Bible. And the very first thing God tells you about himself in verse 2 is something fundamental about himself. God says... Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. So let's interpret the Bible together. In that verse, what is God telling you about himself? How is he presenting himself? What kind of God is he? What kind of character and nature does he have? He's a father. That makes all the difference in the world. He does not present himself as a creator, though he is. He does not announce himself as a sovereign king, though he is. He refers to himself in his relationship to Israel as a jilted, disappointed, heartbroken father. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. It gets worse. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. 
In other words, he says, not only have my children rebelled against me, they've actually behaved worse than the dumbest and most stubborn of the barnyard animals. Oxen and donkeys know who they belong to, understand who feeds them. Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Look carefully in verse 4 because it calls God for the first time the Holy One of Israel and that title is going to occur many more times all across the book. God is going to continually refer to Himself as the Holy One of Israel. And if you slow down when you read your Bible and understand each word and understand this single phrase, it will tell you a lot about God because God announces His holiness. Meaning that He is separate. That's literally what holy means. That God is not better than us. He is other than us. He is in a whole other class of existence. For instance, we're created. He's eternal. That's a fundamental difference between us. We are subject to the ravages of time and death. God is timeless and unchanging. God is the Holy One of Israel. He is entirely separate and above them much more than better than them. He is simply in a different class than them, and yet He belongs to them and they belong to Him. The holiness who God is is also equally true with the Father that God is by His nature. So this God who is so far and above, who actually, if you notice very carefully in the dramatic language of Isaiah, the first thing he does is call the heavens and the earth to witness. It's a court setting. God calls the biggest parts of his creation, the heavens above Israel and the earth beneath their feet. He calls the heaven and the earth that he created to witness against them. It's almost as if God said, can you believe what I'm seeing? Do you see how the people I made to live beneath you heavens and to live on you earth are acting? Do you see what kind of people they've become? I raised them as my children, but they rebelled against me. They're more ignorant and rebellious and ungrateful than the dumbest of barnyard animals because an ox knows its owner and a donkey knows how to get fed, but my people have forgotten even that. I'm holy but I belong to them and they belong to me. That's the nature of sin. Look carefully at the end of verse 4. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The prophets help you see and hear in pictures and in God's own words the character of God Himself. And they help you see the devastation of sin, which is what Israel is doing and what you and I do every time we disobey God. I want you to remember that. No matter how mundane and ordinary your sins, like lying, that is so common. Someone did a, a survey, and I don't remember the exact number, but the average American lies a couple dozen times a day. Little things. 
Nothing that could be brought to court. Merely things that would be embarrassing if revealed. No, I didn't get the email. Oh, I, I forgot about that. No, you didn't forget. You didn't want to do it. That's what's really happening. Ordinary mundane sins, like what we've made such a good lifestyle out of here in Orange County, the sin of comparison, resulting in envy and greed. Where people look at someone who has less than themselves and feels superior. They look at someone who has more than themselves and wonder how they got it. What trust fund, what fraud, what corruption led you to have the kind of wealth that I would so enjoy? The constant comparisons, fueled by envy, fueled by greed, all of it pushed ahead by pride. Those ordinary sins that are so common, we think of them as ordinary life, every single one of those things results from walking away from the Holy One. Every time I've sinned, every time you've sinned, it boils down to this. We think we know better. We believe in this case the consequences will not apply to us. We believe in this case that it will not only be okay, but that it will be, it will be acceptable and it will be for our good to disregard what God says. That's what Israel is doing and the next several verses are one of the most graphic pictures of the effects of sin in the entire Bible. And I want you to get ready because what follows is a heavy word picture. Listen to God plead with Israel. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. See if you can find any season of your life, maybe today in these verses, see if you can see anything in our culture and in our country that is pictured here. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Israel lives surrounded by enemies who want them dead, who would enslave them or destroy them. Those consequences, Isaiah warns, are already upon them. Verse 7, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devours your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion... A beautiful word picture of the beauty and the glory and the privilege that Jerusalem and Israel should have had. The daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. The word pictures in verse 8 may escape you if you're not from a farming country, especially in the Mideast. But the picture is this. Judah and Jerusalem, you should have been a crown should have been a brilliant princess. You should have been a bright light on a hill. Instead, you're like a workman's shack left behind in the weather to crumble in the field where no one will hear and see its final destruction. You should have been the, the queen and the princess of my creation, but instead you're a city with an army at its walls that it's about to be breached and destroyed if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. 
Here you see the faithfulness of God beside the sin of His people. The entire nation has turned away, but in His faithfulness, God has kept a few people close to Himself. And if our culture and our country continue to walk away from God, resolve yourself and ask God for the grace to be among the remnant that is always faithful, whatever the consequences and whatever the cost. Israel, remembering its history and remembering its origins, harkens back to the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, known for their immorality, their cruelty, their lack of hospitality, and said, if the Lord of hosts, in other words, if the Lord of angel armies had not left us a few survivors, we should have been just like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In fact, God says, it's as if your leaders already are. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, your, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. God is showing you His character and showing you the devastating nature of sin. In the verses I've just read to you, a body is pictured that is sick and wounded and bruised and bleeding from head to foot. The picture here is, and take it to heart, Christian, that sin ruins everything. Wherever you allow your will to triumph over the will, over the holy God, you will experience death and degradation. Sin gets in, Jesus warns like yeast and pollutes and corrupts everything. It's only by God's grace that anyone faithful is left. And these next verses were what woke me up at 4.30 this morning. Because the main thing I'd like you to take from your reading of the prophets is not to read them as ancient history, but to read them as living, actual expressions of the reality, the character, and the nature of God. The reality of the severity of sin, the urgency and the beauty of restoration and forgiveness. And to take from the word pictures of God dealing with people a long time and a a long time ago and a long ways away to see if you can find in His character the beauty that you should entrust your life to and see if you can find in your own life the sin that will keep you from Him. These next few verses are heavy. and We're going to have to study them together so that we can understand them. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Let's go back to verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required you this trampling of my courts? There's a lot of Old Testament knowledge here, so let me catch you up if you don't understand what Isaiah is explaining. Isaiah is referring to the rhythms of worship in ancient Israel. He's referring to new moons, which were monthly observations where worship and sacrifices were brought to God. He's referring to Sabbaths. What day of the week was that? 
Saturday, where a whole day of rest and worship was dedicated to God. He's referring, in other words, to daily, weekly, monthly, and the annual rituals and rhythms of worship that kept Israel continually involved and invested with God. They were always coming to the priests. They were always bringing sacrifices. Some were for thanksgiving. Others were to seek forgiveness. Every part of their life required worship and required sacrifice. And in verse 12, God says, who asked you to do any of this? And if you've read the Old Testament, it's a very surprising question. Because the answer is, who asked them to do all that? God did. And he didn't ask it. He commanded it. He told them, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, to do these things. So what's going on? Verse 13 gives the answer. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, that's the monthly worship. And Sabbath, that's the weekly worship. And the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. God calls solemn assemblies, but He cannot bear them when they're done with iniquity in the heart. As God says elsewhere, these people praise me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Keep reading. Verse 14. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of what? Blood. Wow. Now, why did I wake up at 4.30 in the morning thinking about this section of the passage? Because I read these 20 verses for two weeks. Not all the time, not every day, but repeatedly. And these verses, from verse 11 down through 15, God applied those to my heart. And I woke up with a lot of conviction. I just have to honestly tell you this morning at 4.30, because what God is telling you here, as He denounces sin and shows Israel what it has cost them, is that you can continue all the religious activity in the world and have a heart filled with sin the whole time. And the question that woke me up at 4.30 in the morning, about 33 years into vocational ministry, how much of this is habitual? How much am I doing it just because I've always done it? Am I going to preach this morning? These are the questions at 4.30. Am I going to preach this morning because it's time to do so? Am I going to preach this morning because I'm the preacher? Am I going to preach because that's the way I was raised? In other words, is this just rhythm? Is this just habit? Is this just solemn assembly? How much of it is habitual and how much of it is actually heartfelt worship? I had to talk about God. I had to talk to God about that this morning, and I would urge you in the name of Jesus to continually be measuring not only your external activity, which is commanded by God, but the state of your heart, which is what matters most to Him. 
Because you can come to all the services, you can sing all the songs, you can lead all the groups, you can do all the ministries, you can offer up all the prayers, you can give all the offerings and still be so far from God that God would say to you, when did I ever ask you to do any of that? Stop talking to me because when you lift your hands in prayer, I can see that they're filled with the blood of sin. It's heavy. It's real. That's why we read the prophets to see the holy character of God and the severity of sin. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Take verse 17 to heart, Christian, it matters so much. Learn to do good. Seek, what's it say? Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. What God is saying to His sinful people that what is needed is cleansing. And if there is cleansing, if there really is a forgiven and a restored life, it will always be accompanied by doing good. It will always be accompanied by doing justice. And we live in such a crazy political and cultural time that the mere mention of the word justice makes some Christians cringe. Did any of you cringe when I read the word justice? You shouldn't. It's in the Bible. Right here, two times in a single verse. You shouldn't cringe when you hear the word justice. You know why? Because your Father who is in heaven is just and does justice. He loves justice, and when He truly restores and cleanses a person's heart, He gives them the justice of the righteousness of Christ. Because Jesus has absorbed the justice that our sins deserved, we receive the life of Jesus instead. And if we really have Him, we love the things that God loves. What kinds of things does God love? He loves it when people do good. He loves it when people seek justice. He loves it when His people correct oppression. He loves it when His people bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Let me speak clearly on this because our churches and our nation are in such a state that terms have been co-opted and redefined. And we need to re-adopt them and invigorate them with their original intended biblical meaning. God wants His people to love justice the way He does, to do good and to seek justice as He commands. And that's not an Old Testament idea that runs all the way through to the New Testament. That's why James says in the first chapter of his letter, James the brother of Jesus says that true and undefiled religion is to defend the fatherless and to seek the good of widows. That's why in the last chapter of his letter, in James chapter 5, James, sounding just like Isaiah or one of the ancient prophets, calls the rich to account and confronts them with the fact that the reason they're rich is because of fraud and murder and oppression and corruption. God is not opposed to wealth because God himself is wealthy. It's not that God hates the rich and loves the poor. No, God loves every human being He made. He hates what sin has done to His creation. He hates it so much and loves us so much that He sent His Son, Jesus, 
to stand in our place to give us his life instead of the life that our sin had made for us. And if we truly have a redeemed heart, we will seek the good and the righteousness and the faithfulness and, yes, the justice that our Father has always and eternally had as part of His character. When Christians speak about justice, that is a path that we need to learn to walk and there's a ditch, as always, on either side of the road. Here's the ditches. And you can decide which one you veer toward because any time God tells you to walk down the path of truth, your heart, your experience, your woundedness, your sins will incline you toward one ditch or the other. And part of discipleship is learning to walk the road. Ditch on one side says, if you pursue justice, you don't really need to worry about Jesus. Doing justice, seeking to correct oppression, loving the poor, helping the orphan, defending the widow, those good deeds are sufficient and Jesus doesn't need to come up because Jesus is seen in those actions. And it's nonsense. Years ago I read the testimony of a very prominent Christian leader, a woman, who went over to a ravaged part of Africa and spoke about meeting a woman who was dying of AIDS. And the entirety of her testimony is before that woman died, she gave her a hug and placed a blanket over her. Those are loving, compassionate, good acts. But after reading the story two or three times, hoping that there was more and discovering that all that was mentioned was a hug and a blanket before death, I thought to myself, well, I hope she also or someone before her told her about Jesus. Because otherwise, that's just in a hug and a blanket before condemnation. That's a moment of earthly comfort before a lifetime, an eternity of judgment. We don't want to fall in that ditch that says that justice pursued here on earth is all that matters and that Jesus can be left out of the equation. No, He is life. He gives eternal life. We pursue justice because He does. We care for orphans and widows and victims and stop oppression whenever and however we can because that is the very character of God. The other ditch on the other side is, if you have Jesus, then justice on this earth doesn't matter at all. And stop bringing it up and stop using that word. And that's just as much nonsense because the few Christians who hold that view, you'll notice the minute their cause is ruined, the minute they're arrested, the minute their money is taken, they immediately start talking about, can you guess? Justice. Justice. And they want right to be restored and wrong to be recognized and justice to be done. We can't get away from justice. Our hearts cry out for it. That's why our conscience accuses us until we meet Jesus and He comes in and offers Himself and gives Himself as the full payment to cover all of our injustice and our unrighteousness. But if our hearts are truly cleansed, verse 16, if we are washed, if we are clean, if we take the evil of our days away from the eyes of God, if we cease to do evil, we will also do good. We will seek justice. We will correct oppression. We will bring justice to the fatherless. We plead the widow's cause. That's why you hear this church speaking for the unborn. 
That's why we give so much money and so much of our time and so many of our church members to causes and churches and works far from our walls. We send missionaries from this church and don't see them again for years. They often go into very dark places like Randall Fernandez in a very difficult spot in the Middle East walking. His Sunday is over. Randall walked into church. If if Sunday for him was like every Sunday, he walked past armed guards that were provided for the government to prevent a terrorist attack. That's a normal Sunday. Snipers on the roof on big days. And they warn the children don't climb the walls of the church because the snipers don't go to church here and they may not recognize that you're playing. They might think you're an attacker. We send people into those kinds of places and support organizations like Saving Innocence in L.A. County that provide caseworkers to children rescued from sex trafficking. The moment they are picked up, someone comes to them and provides wraparound care to them until they are adults. Why do we do that? Because God hates oppression. Because God hates death. Because God gave His Son to reverse death and to give life. So being a Christian is not only presenting Jesus, it's presenting Jesus in His fullness, including His love of justice. So stay out of the ditches and learn from the prophet Isaiah. Let's learn to do good and to seek justice and to correct oppression and bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Now, finally, comes one of the most beautiful presentations of the gospel in the Old Testament. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Now, after the language you've just heard, where God is calling heaven and earth to witness against His people, It's as if he's asking all of creation, can you believe what I'm seeing? After telling them that their whole lives and their whole country is like a body, sick from head to toe, oozing with blood and pus with no healing present or even sought. After all of that, verse 18 is a little bit surprising because it sounds like pleading. And according to my Hebrew professor, Dr. Richard Rigsby, many years ago, this verse in Hebrew almost has a pleading, please listen to me, you can't read the emotion in it, but maybe you can hear it just a little tiny bit. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. This is a promise for you. It was written to them, but it's a promise for you. Listen. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. There's a contrast there. What colors are being contrasted? Red and white. Do you ever mix anything red in with the whites in your wash? The laughter tells me that you, maybe you have. Many, many years ago, when I was a college student in this church, I stayed in the lovely home of an elderly couple in our church who was kind enough to put a starving Bible college up, college kid up for the summer since the dorms were closed. And the lady of the house, one day, meaning to do me a favor, did my wash. She made one mistake. She put all my whites in 
was something that must have been bright red. Because when I got all my warm, nicely folded whites back, they weren't quite white anymore. Can you guess what color they were? Just the slightest tinge of pink. And it was t-shirts, and it was shorts, and it was socks. And that put me, I couldn't afford to replace it for a little while, so that put me in a kind of a bad way, especially this one outfit. I'd go out with a slightly pink t-shirt, and slightly pink shorts, and slightly pink socks, and one of the guys I'm playing basketball with goes, bro, are you, uh, you wearing all pink? <laughs> I go, no, no, man, this, this is white. He goes, no, no, no. He stuck his tube socks out. He goes, this is white. You're, you're wearing pink, my man. I go, well... And I left it out in the sun and tried stuff with bleach. Nothing worked. Dr. Richard Rixby also told us of a time he was in Israel where a piece of cloth was brought out, brought out to show the visiting tour group. Bright, brilliant red, he said. The shocking thing he said after seeing how brilliantly red this little piece of fabric they were being shown was, was the guide telling them that though the date was impossible to determine, the fabric they were looking at was many centuries old, but had been dyed in Israel bright red using an insect that is common in the Mediterranean, very expensive, very laborious to make this dye, to have that kind of clothing actually signified wealth because it took so long and it was so expensive to make. If you were clothed in crimson, you were somebody of great importance. You stood out. And he told them, this little piece of fabric here, bright as it is, was actually dyed this color a long, long time ago. That's the backdrop for this picture. God is saying to Israel, and 2,700 years later, is saying to people who are bothered with guilt and anxiety and shame over their past and over their sin, whose conscience won't let them alone, listen, I see everything you've done. When you reach hands up in prayer to me, I see hands that are covered in blood. I see everything you've ever done wrong. I see your bad intentions. I see your terrible motives. I see your pride and your greed and your lying and your self-seeking. I see your sexual pleasures and deviancies. I see it all. But come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here's what Isaiah tells us. Repentance leads to restoration and blessing. That's what Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1 through 20 tells you. Then, 2,700 years ago, and today, this day in October in 2022, if there is any distance between you and your God, repentance and restoration will lead to His blessing. He will wash you clean. He will give you a whole new life because the gospel promises if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The picture and the promise for us is this, that scarlet sin and dark rebellion are washed clean by the grace of God through Christ. That's why we read Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, speaking of Jesus, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. See the word play? 
Your, skin, your sins are bright red. They scream scandalously to God. And the way He's going to wash them away is by the death of His own Son. And the blood of the righteous one will wash away your guilt and wash away your shame and you will have the full forgiveness of your trespasses and that won't be done because you've promised to do better, because you've figured things out, because you've improved yourself. That will be done according to the riches of God's own grace. You can't earn it. You can only receive it as His gift. That's why God pleads with you to come sit down with Him, listen to Him, and choose carefully the path that you, that you take and the step that you take next because it will be the difference between the good of the land and the end of your life. That's why we read the prophets. Because they place life and death before us. Because they place blessing and destruction before us and they invite us to choose through the love of God the best path expressed through the perfect life of the riches of the grace of His Son, Jesus Christ, the love of the Father given through the Son and applied by the Spirit. So if you're in the habit of coming into church every week, guilty over the week that you've just lived through, feeling like a hypocrite, you don't have to feel like that anymore. You can make that U-turn. You can make an act of repentance. You can realize and admit to God the hardest thing of all to confess to God or to anybody else is that you've been headed the wrong way. That He is right and He always has been. And that you've heard His word and you are choosing to believe Him and stop believing yourself. And that He will give you everything he's ever promised you if only you'll listen let's pray together Christian did you realize how greatly you're loved do you still keep a picture of the severity of sin have you gotten too casual with it maybe has it become too habitual Habits are great. You can build a life out of habits. But not if they don't come from a transformed heart. Maybe like me, Christian, you've seen this indictment of people choosing their own way and you've recognized a little bit of yourself in it. Could I invite you to reason with God? Sit down with Him and tell Him that He's right and you've been wrong. Ask Him to cleanse that conscience. Make your life brilliant white. Give you the peace of a good conscience toward God. And hey, maybe most importantly, you're not sure that God's in the picture at all. Maybe you believe in God and that's why you're here. You're not really sure that you have eternal life. Based on what you can see of your life and your thought life, you're just not sure there's enough evidence that God has already done this for you. That all those promises, all those riches, all those blessings in Ephesians are really yours. If you're not sure, can I invite you to make sure this morning, please? And to just 
call out to God in honest confession and say, God, I'm here. I'm a sinner. I have a guilty conscience. I feel bad about the things I've said and done and thought. I'm asking your forgiveness. I want you to wash me clean. I want me to give, give me that life that's white as snow. If you'll ask him in faith, in repentant faith, he'll do it every time. That's the promise of Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You can have it today if you're not sure that you already do. If you'll just humbly ask him.